I will safely say I've never had an intro like that. Thank you very much, Dale. Uh, you know, a couple weeks ago, my friend Andrew came up and he talked about the story that people sometimes confuse Dale as Andrew's dad. I will, you'd be happy to know that that has never happened between me and Dale. However, I have been confused as Anna's dad, which tells you a thing or two. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Send any complaints to Dale at calvarylg.com. Uh, if you know me at all, you know that I am into all things on two wheels. So motorcycles, cycling, all of that, I am fully into that, right? Full send, that is what my life is really all about outside of church and doing, you know, God's work, right? So that's like secondary thing and my family, all those other things, right? Well, uh, this year, if you know at all the cycling world, just come with me a little bit. July kind of marks one of the biggest events in our cycling calendar, and that is the Tour de France. Now, this year has a little bit more hype because Netflix had a little bit of a documentary come out, and it's got a little bit of the F1 effect, you know, so everyone's following along. And one of the biggest storylines in the Tour de France this year is whether or not a 38-year-old sprinter, which I just turned 39, so I'm like, I could still do it, right? Um, uh, but a 38-year-old sprinter named Mark Cavendish is trying to do something that no other person has done in the 110-year history of the Tour de France, and that is to win 35 stages in his lifetime. Currently, he's tied with Eddie Merckx at 34, and no one thought that he stood a chance until he came in in 2021, and he ended up winning four stages. And then in 2022, no team wanted to take their chance on him, so they left him off the roster until one team this year decided to take a chance on Mark Cavendish to bring him on so that he can try and go and win one stage. I'm not going to give any spoiler alerts, but I say all of this nerdy stuff to tell you that we are obsessed with being the best, aren't we? Yeah, we know it's true because it rhymes, all right? But we are obsessed with goats. Do you guys know what goats are? Goats are the greatest of all time. And there's always kind of these heated debates about who is the greatest of all time. Probably the most famous one on Sports Talk Radio. Thousands of years of my life is really all about this. But who is the greatest quarterback of all time? Is it Tom Brady or is it Joe Montana? Now, depending on who you ask, again... Send all your complaints to Dale Gustafson, okay? But for me, and this is without a shadow of a doubt, the greatest quarterback of all time is Steve Young, okay? <laughs> if you don't agree, we will pray for your salvation. You're still welcome here, but don't drink any of the coffee, okay? Um, but we love this idea of chasing after the greatest, don't we? About becoming the greatest. This idea of becoming the greatest gives us a sense of transcendence. We even use religious language to describe these people. We talk about the fact that we idolize our heroes, right? We idolize the people who are the greatest. In fact, this week in the LA Times, Kurt Streeter writes that when LeBron James walks into a locker room, goat hosannas are practically the soundtracks of his life. If you're familiar with the word Hosanna, it's the same word that's said when Jesus walks into Jerusalem, they're shouting Hosanna, save now, save now. It's like, whoa, you're using religious language to talk about LeBron James? We even call him King James, right? You see, our culture is obsessed with greatness. We're obsessed with achievement and standing out and building things higher and bigger and faster. And it's not just enough for us to get better, right? We have to be the best, especially here in the Bay Area. 
Steve Jobs once said this. He said, we are here to put a dent in the universe. Otherwise, why are we even here? That tells us a little bit about this ethos that's ingrained in our culture. But perhaps the modern day thinker said it best. And that is Ricky Bobby who said this. If you ain't first, you're last. So we all know what we're talking about, right? We're all on the same page here. It's for this reason that Jesus today is going to get a little bit under our skin. Don't worry, it's not just you, it's also me, but we're going to get through this together. And what Jesus is going to do is he's going to redirect this drive that we have in all of us to be great. And he's going to begin moving us from this self-focus of building our own kingdoms to a place where we can think of ourselves less so that we can build God's kingdom. You see, Jesus is going to push back against the gospel according to Ricky Bobby. And he's going to say this, if you want to be first, be the very last. And so a couple weeks ago, Andrew unpacked the story of pulling his three friends together for the ultimate mountaintop experience. And at the very end of it, it really is just Jesus asking the disciples, is Jesus going to be a consultant to our lives who offers great advice that we can take or leave? Or is Jesus the Christ whom we give ultimate authority in every area of our life? Last week, Pastor Rob continued on in this series, unpacking this idea that disciples are trying to cast out this demon, but they can't do it. And so I want you guys to just remember that story and keep that in your back pocket because we're going to revisit that capstone a little bit, that they're going to try and cast out this demon, but they can't do it, so they're frustrated. And again, it goes back to what Pastor Rob was talking about. Who is the ultimate authority in our life? So with all of that, are you guys ready to dive into our passage today? Great. Okay, let's go. I'm excited. If you guys have your Bibles, you can turn in your digital devices to Mark chapter 9. Or if you have an analog Bible like myself that has, you know, pages and print, the best way to find where we're at today, open up halfway in your Bibles. You'll be in probably the Psalms or Proverbs. You're going to flip right past all the hard to read Hebrew names. And you're going to slow down when you get to the names that you would name your sons. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. We're in the book of Mark, okay? Chapter 9. We're going to be in verse 30. Are you guys with me? Yes. All right. Let's go. Verse 30 of chapter 9. They left that place and passed through Galilee. But Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Teacher, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. Truly, I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. 
Man, what an incredible passage. So let's begin to kind of unpack what's going on here. First of all, we see that they are passing through Galilee. And Mark says that Jesus didn't want anyone to know where they were because in verse 31, he wanted to teach his disciples. If you guys are a Bible underliner or a circler or a highlighter, circle that idea that he wanted to teach his disciples. And this should be something that stands out to us because what Jesus is about to unpack for us is not for general public consumption. Jesus' teaching here is specific to those for whom have these people have said that Jesus is not just an advisor to my life. Jesus is my authority. That what Jesus is teaching his disciples here is for specifically the people who say, I have made Jesus the center of my life. Everyone else can operate according to their own standards, their own way of life. But for us who are Jesus followers, this is an important part that we have to get. Verse 31 through 32 is where he begins to unpack this. And this is where Jesus says, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. Now, the thing we have to note in here is that the Son of Man is in reference to Daniel chapter 7, which is this amazing prophetic vision of the one who is coming, who's going to have divine authority uh, over the kingdom. He's going to have this messianic role. And the reason why this is important, because it shows up in the Gospels about 80 times. Okay, real nerdy. But the reason why I point this out is because of this. Sometimes what I hear from people is that they say, well, how do we know that Jesus is God? Because Jesus never said he was God. The reality is that Jesus actually said he was God all the time. He just did it in a very Jewish way. And so whenever Jesus says that I am the son of man, he's referring us back to Daniel 7. He's like all those prophecies, everything they said about what the Messiah was going to be like, I am the fulfillment of that. And so Jesus says, I am going to die. And the disciples in verse 32 say that they don't understand what he meant because they were afraid to ask him about it. Now, I think there's actually two reasons for this. The first one is that the last time that this came up, Peter responded and then Jesus called him Satan, right? So they're like, hey, I've seen this before, right? Like, I'm not going to answer that. But the second reason is this. In the first century, if you wanted to follow a rabbi, if you wanted to be a disciple of a rabbi, you literally did what that person did. You lived as they lived. And whatever fate that they had for their life was usually going to be your fate. And so for Jesus, if Jesus says this idea that no servant is going to be greater than his master, when Jesus talks about the fact that he's going to go to Jerusalem and die, the disciples are thinking, whoa, whoa, if Jesus has to go and die and we're following Jesus, what does that mean for me? I don't want to die. And so it's a little bit confusing for them and they're a little bit scared. And what we need to know and understand when it comes to this and it comes to us being disciples of Jesus and why I love that Jesus brings up this idea that he's going to suffer and die It's this idea that following Jesus does not guarantee ease in our life. Following Jesus does not mean that you're going to get a free pass on suffering and hardship in our life. It doesn't mean that you're going to just get what you want if you just say it and believe it and you name it and you claim it. That it's possible to have deep faith and still face hardships in our life. And the reason why this is really important is because I meet people all the time who say things like this. I used to follow Jesus. I used to believe in God, but then I got that rejection letter. But then I prayed and I still didn't get that job. I had my heart broken. I still faced financial troubles. And so I just gave up. And what I want to say to them is this, is that you didn't give up on the Jesus that we read about in the gospel. What you gave up on was this false gospel of prosperity. This faith that offers a pain-free life. Can we have a little bit of real talk here? Like person to person, like layperson to layperson, okay? Here's some real talk. 
I've been following Jesus for 20 years. And in those 20 years, after following Jesus and saying, God, Jesus, you are the ultimate authority in my life, I still got disowned by my family. I still got diagnosed with stomach cancer. I still prayed and watched people die. I got rejected from jobs. I experienced church hurt. I prayed and I prayed and the A's are still moving to Vegas, okay? <laughs> but what I've experienced is this, is that with every single hardship, my faith was forged in strength. You see, hardship is part of the journey of following Jesus. And the sooner we accept that, the more joy we can have because we can trust that God is carrying us through all of those hardships. Now, I don't want you to get me wrong because God did some amazing things in my life and I've watched God redeem so much of the hurt and the pain that I've experienced in my life. He redeemed all of it. But this is an important part that we have to remember about being a disciple of Jesus. And that is remembering this truth that life can be hard and yet God can still be good at the same time. Amen? And so Jesus has this super intense moment, okay? He's speaking just honest truth to the disciples. And then it's broken up with a moment of comedy. And this moment of comedy is what happens in some marriages. Not my marriage, but maybe other people's marriages, right? Have you guys ever had that moment where you're talking with your spouse and you're having this super intense conversation and it has like, you know, future implications and you get really deep and then all of a sudden one person's like, hey, you know what? Sheep are actually quite big in real life. Right? Have you ever been there? Like all of a sudden you're like, whoa, that came out of nowhere. I was just pouring out my heart. And all of a sudden you bring up something that doesn't have anything to do with anything. Not saying that that happened to me at all. Okay. But don't look at the person that's next to you. Okay. But this is exactly what happens here in this passage. That here the disciples arrive in Capernaum, which is Peter's hometown. It's where Jesus makes his home base. And as they're unpacking the suburban, a rather large suburban with 12 people getting out of this thing, Jesus turns to them and says, hey, what were you guys arguing about? In verse 34, all of a sudden, they're like really quiet. I kind of imagine like my kids when they're like arguing about something. I'm like, what was that about? And they're like, Shut up. you know, like don't tell them. But they kept quiet because they were arguing about who was the greatest. About who was the greatest. The reason why they didn't understand what Jesus was talking about here and why they didn't understand that Jesus was talking about that he was going to go and die is that Jesus was actually reaching the peak of his influence. He was building quite a following. There was people who were gathering all around him. He had never been more influential. And so from their perspective, Jesus is about to roll into Jerusalem with an army of his followers ready to take over Judea. And if they're his followers, what does that mean? It means that they're going to be like the lieutenants, the captains who are going to be walking alongside him saying, Jesus is going to take over Jerusalem and we're going to be right beside him. But who's going to be to his right and who's going to be to his left? This is everything that they experienced because from their perspective, when they looked at all of their leaders, all of the leaders in their life sought greatness. All of the leaders in their life had names on buildings. They had their face on coins. They had stories and songs and campaign slogans. But now here in the first century, whenever you heard the word great, they thought about one person. And that person that they thought about was actually Herod. Now for most of us, most of us actually don't know anything about Herod outside of the fact that he is a footnote in the Christmas story. But in first century Judea, he was a little bit like our Elon Musk, okay? He was everywhere, okay? He's on Twitter. He's all in all the buildings. He's built a lot of stuff. He's this great innovator. He's this builder. He's brilliant. And he's, he's also a little bit crazy, okay? So like, let's just throw that one out there. Just kidding, Elon, if you're watching. 
Most, he was probably most famous for actually building the second temple in Jerusalem, which the mount is still there today. And I want you guys to just have this idea in your mind of how great of a builder he actually was because some of the, build, the stones that they used to build the temple were literally the size of school buses. And so you stand next to that and you think, how did he engineer this? How did he get people to do this? He was probably most famous for uh, that second temple. But the thing that is interesting that if you've ever gone to Israel with us, which I think there's some of us who are here today on that Israel trip, but he built this fortress in the middle of this desert. And the middle of this desert is a fortress called Masada. And I think I have a, 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 a sort of a recreation here. And it literally is this building that's built on top of this mountain that's surrounded by an entire desert place, okay? Some of us who've been there, this thing is so high. I think I have a little perspective because Mary Ayashi is actually like walking up this hill. No, sorry, we went back to this thing. Uh, but she's walking up this hill and it takes forever. And you kind of think, gosh, like how did he build this great building on top of this mountain here? And on top of all of that, he actually created aqueducts in order to funnel fresh water to get into the fortress where it would have these huge wells. It's an incredible feat of engineering. Just outside of Pal what is modern day Palestine, he built this palace that's on top of a mountain called the Herodian, named after himself, Herod. And because there was another mountain that was obstructing his views, that was overlooking the desert and Jerusalem, he had slaves cut that mountain in half and add it to his hill. And then he built his fortress on top of that hill. So if you go there today, you see this one mountain with like, that looks a little bit decapitated. And then you see his giant fortress. And then what's interesting about this is that I think that when Jesus is talking about this idea about a faith that moves mountains, he's actually pointing us back to this image. That literally our faith can move mountains. So Herod was this incredible builder, but his narcissism and his desire for greatness actually consumed him. As he got a little bit older in life, he became paranoid about who was taking over his power. So he ended up killing off everyone that he perceived as a threat to his power, hence the massacre of the boys in Bethlehem as the birth of Jesus, if you guys remember that story. And so ancient Roman historian Josephus said this, he said, Herod's ambition knew no bounds. He would stop at nothing to achieve and maintain his power. Archaeologist from Duke, Eric Myers, said Herod's ambition was as grand as his paranoia. He killed off members of his own family, including his wife and his sons, out of fear that they posed a threat to his great rule. And this got me as I was reading this quote this week. Have you ever seen people sacrifice their own future for their present glory today? Have you ever seen that happen? Dead Sea scholar Lawrence Shipman from NYU said this, Herod's ambition to be recognized as the king of the Jews drove him to drive alliances with Romans. He compromised his own heritage in order to maintain his position. You see, Romans were obsessed with this idea of glory and honor and prestige and ambition at all costs. And it's with this backdrop that Jesus turns this entire conversation on his head. He pulls together his 12 disciples. And in verse 35, it says that he sat down. This is the position of a rabbi. In the original language of the New Testament, it's used to describe a king who sits on his throne or a judge who sits on his stand or his bench. And so this is real talk here. And he's getting eyeball to eyeball with his disciples. And he says, anyone who wants to be the first must be the very last and the servant of all. First, what we have to note is that Jesus is not saying that our desire to be great is wrong. We have to understand that. Scripture does not condemn greatness or ambition, but it does caution us against allowing that drive for greatness to deceiving us to thinking that we are our own gods. 
And so Psalm 38 is really clear. It says that God brings low the proud, that whoever exalts themselves will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Peter is gonna take it a step further in 1 Peter 5, 5, later on in the New Testament. He says that God actually opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Ambition is not bad, but it cautions us against selfish ambition. When our drive to get to the top will come at any cost, even if it means sacrificing our ethics, our morals, or our regard for other humans in order to get what we want, that's when ambition becomes a problem. And so Jesus takes his disciples and he sits down and he's like, okay, guys, eyes up here, eyes up here, look at me. If you want to be first, be the last and serve everyone. This would have been so revolutionary for his day. Have you ever worked for a great leader in your life? Typically those leaders that we say are great are those who will never ask you to do something that they wouldn't do themselves. And so what Jesus was doing here was actually unpacking something that the Roman, the ancient world never even really thought of. In fact, Plato, one of their greatest philosophers said this, how can a man be happy if he has to serve someone? This was part of the culture and the ethos of the age. And if, it were, if we're honest with ourselves, isn't that true for us? Doesn't it feel better to be served than to serve sometimes? Doesn't it feel good to be first and be best and to be at the top of your game? But here in a world where people were in it for themselves, where they created this cutthroat culture that in order for me to get ahead, it means that somebody else has to lose, that I'm willing to do whatever it takes to get to the top, Jesus actually offers something for us that is refreshing and that something is really good news. And that is that Jesus says it doesn't have to be this way. We don't have to keep perpetuating this narrative And so Jesus begins to offer us a vision of the kingdom, one of collaboration and of generosity and of genuine care that doesn't eliminate processes. It doesn't get rid of margins or productivity or ambition, but instead what Jesus does is he redirects it. Jesus redirects all of that that in a way that ensures renewal and flourishing of whole communities. Isn't that something we long for? Isn't it refreshing when somebody comes to a position of authority or power that really wants to say, how do we create an environment and a culture and a community in which everyone can be renewed and everyone has an opportunity to thrive and to flourish? And so Jesus was trying to get the disciples to see the difference between a kingdom of Herod and a kingdom of God. And what he says, and he points to this idea that Herod's kingdom literally brought death and destruction. But Jesus says that the kingdom of God leads literally to life, renewal, and thriving and resurrection. And so I quickly just sat down and I began to kind of compare the way of Jesus to the way of Herod. So these are some of the things that I just kind of pulled out. According to Herod, the significance of who we are is built on the number, the, the number of buildings that we name after ourselves. He built to be remembered, but today His buildings have crumbled, and for most of us, he's a footnote to the Christmas story. He was consumed by becoming a legend. For Jesus, Jesus was about making an impact in people with the time that we have. It was about leaving a legacy that passes from one generation to the next generation. When it comes to possessions, what do we do with the stuff that we have? For Herod, accumulation was a a symbol of status. It was about grandiosity. It was the sense that what we have in life gives us ultimate meaning in life. 
And so we operated from a mentality of scarcity, that there's not enough for all of us. And so we accumulate and we hoard. But for Jesus, everything we have in this life is a gift from God. And because everything is a gift, we can be generous. It was a mentality of abundance. And he operated from a place where a trust in God, with a trust in God's provision that we can let go and actually give away to others. And it doesn't mean that it's going to take away anything from us. When it comes to power, Herod operated by fear, command, and control. He lived with this Machiavellian mentality that it's better to be feared than to be loved. And in this mentality, he believed that people, that he was impeded by others. But for Jesus, Jesus operated by love and example and surrendered. That the fear of losing power is about one person, but love can transform everything. And so Jesus can empower others. When it comes to people, Herod viewed other people as competition, where he was willing to sacrifice others so that he can be honored and that people were perceived as a threat. So he was literally paranoid by it. And he literally killed off members of his own family. In fact, at one point, Caesar Augustus said, I'd much rather be Herod's pig than Herod's son. Jesus viewed people as partners. To build God's kingdom in which communities can flourish required the collaboration of others. And that this vision was worth actually sacrificing your own ambition for. And so we see renewal and transformation when we begin to believe that we are actually better together. And we actually don't need to be a Christian to know this is true. We just need to watch basketball, right? (laughs) Or even cycling. It's impossible for us to win without a team. In fact, this week I read something really interesting in the Association of MBAs, which I didn't even know that existed. But they wrote an entire article about how self-sacrifice creates movements and leaves a legacy of leaders. Now, I know that for most of us, when we look at this, it might be easy for us to, to dismiss the way of Herod and say, you know what, I'm so glad that doesn't happen anymore today, right? But it's so pervasive in our culture, and the only reason why I know is because I work with Silicon Valley families. When I work and I come to the school, I hear students who say things like this. Pastor Steve, you you want us to connect with other people and other students, but I can't connect with them because they're my competition. If they take that one slot for that one program or that one school, that means that I don't get into that spot or that school. Students who come and sit and they feel the weight of this pressure with their families all the time. They say, you know what my parents tell me, the advice when it comes to other people? They say, if your relationships don't get you what you want, don't waste your time. And so when I think about the weight of what this means for disciples of Jesus and what it literally means in our own home, I believe it's one of the most important lessons that we can grab a hold of because for me, I don't want to raise up the next generation with that mindset that creates this culture where everything is cutthroat and it's all about me and the self. You see, what Jesus teaches here to the disciples is essential to our testimony here in the valley and beyond. And it's especially true because the culture of self is so prevalent that it's become a religion. This week I was getting my hair cut because it's one of my favorite things to do. And something stopped me and there was this sign. I'm not going to tell you what the first part of the sign says, but it said, blank is a journey of self through the self to the self. And I kept underlining that word in my head, self, self, self. And I thought, you know what? Anything that becomes about the self for too long actually becomes self-destructive. What we need and what we desire and what we seek is actually humility. 
And so C.S. Lewis says this, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's actually thinking of yourself less. And I believe that this is essential to our testimony of what Jesus has done in our lives and what that testimony says to all of Silicon Valley. Could you imagine what it would be like if our managers and our bosses and our coworkers lived out their lives in a way that they were so secure in what God has done for them that they aren't threatened when they give other people credit? Could you imagine what life would be like if we were surrounded by people who care just as much about our ethics and our morals as much as it is about our return on investment? Now, I know that some of you hear this and you might think, okay, Steve, that's really naive, right? That's like a perfect, like pie in the sky idea, like Jesus wasn't realistic. And I would say you are absolutely right. That is completely naive if Jesus didn't raise from the dead. But because Jesus raised from the dead and because he modeled it, And because he gave it away, I believe that it is actually possible. And the good news is that if you feel like humility is hard or impossible, the really good news is this, that humility is a heart issue. But the good news is that God is in the business of changing hearts. And so what I want to give to you and what I hope that is a challenge and encouragement to you is how do we begin to take steps towards Jesus' vision of the kingdom? I think the first thing that we can do, and probably the most important thing, is to actually do a heart check. And really the question around the heart check is this. Has my position or my role changed my heart or my attitude to serve? Has my position or my role changed my heart or my attitude to serve? And in this passage, what follows, follows, what Jesus does next is completely brilliant. Because like a good boss, he shows us by example. And so he sits among the 12, and it says that he brings a child to sit among their myths. And in the Greco-Roman world that was built on utility, where your worth was literally based on what you actually brought to the table, kids didn't bring anything to the table, so they were of little value. And so when you think about the order of the status in the ancient world, it was this. Men, women, children, donkeys, okay? The donkeys had more value than children because they brought more to the table. And so Jesus brings this child and sits them among them. And he says, can you serve even these? The lowest in society. Are you willing to serve people who cannot pay you back or cannot raise your status in life? You see, in Jesus' vision of the kingdom, we don't work to be recognized by people. We work to be seen by God. And one of the best places we can see this is actually in our own homes. Are we willing to serve people who will never say thank you? Who will never see your work? Husbands, are you willing to serve your wives and your children knowing that they may never fully know or appreciate the things that you do, but you can rest knowing that you are seen by God? Wives, are you willing to serve your families knowing that they may never see your sacrifice and your dedication, but you can rest knowing that you are seen by God? You see, when we serve resting in this truth, we can begin to allow joy to overcome the resentment that builds up over time. One of the things that really struck me this week is this idea that in heaven, we're going to be cheering on the names of people that we will never know on this earth. And as I think about like the people who work in facilities or our security guards and things like that, like I made me think like, how come I don't go and know their names? Because I want to know what to shout when we're in heaven. Like this is Jesus' vision of what the kingdom is going to be like. And this is what we want to move us to, to say, hey, like when you work and you serve, you don't do it for other people. You don't do it for recognition. You don't do it to get a name on a plaque, but you do it to be seen by God. The second thing that we can do is that we can be generous with credit. 
This passage ends with verse 39 and 40 when the disciples go up to Jesus and say, Jesus, we saw this guy who was casting out demons in your name, but we told him to stop because they're not one of us. You know what they're thinking? They're thinking back to the passage of a couple of verses earlier where they're like, they've been following Jesus, but they couldn't cast out demons. And yet all of a sudden, this one guy who doesn't walk with them, doesn't follow them, is doing the same things or the things that they wanted to do. And you see, for Jesus, what he says is that when it comes to this idea that there is enough credit to go around in God's kingdom, that don't, we don't need to fear elevating others because we know from God's word that those who elevate others will also be elevated. The work of the kingdom is too broad for only one or two people to get credit. So give credit away because that's how the kingdom works. In fact, this is one of the things that I've even kind of realized in my own life. That when it comes to leaders, I love the leaders who elevate others because this is the power of humility, which I know is an oxymoron like jumbo shrimp, okay? The power of humility. But it's true. We can be generous with credit because of what God has done for us and because we know that the work of the kingdom, there is plenty to go around. There's plenty of credit to go around. And the third thing is that we could do this. Big changes start small. Big changes start small. In verse 30, 41, Jesus says, anyone who gives a cup of cold water in my name because you belong to the Messiah, will certainly not lose their reward. Just a simple cup of water. Sometimes when we think about service, we think that we have to do something drastic in our lives, right? That we need to get on an airplane and go to another country and then do the work there. That we need to go somewhere else to serve. But I would argue that the most important things that we can do in terms of service is starting right where we live, right in our homes, right in our backyard, right here at church. Maybe it's your roommates or your teammates. And you start to wonder, how might you serve them? A couple weeks ago, I was asking Miranda, our high school pastor, I'm like, hey, like, I'm looking to serve at summer break. I got like, some of my nights free. What can I do to serve you? And she was a little bit hesitant, but she's like, hey, like, would you be willing to just come and barbecue? And I was like, absolutely, I'm willing to come and barbecue because I remember being a high school pastor. And all of the volunteers who said, you know what, I will go and flip burgers for you so that you can go and connect with kids. And my whole family was out there and we were like, okay, let's go and we can go and flip burgers. And it made me really think back to this idea that the day I stop being available to barbecue for kids, that's when I know that I have a problem with my heart. You see, when we look for ways to serve, we don't need to do big, drastic things. We can start really small. Calvary, as Calvary member to Calvary member, we don't need to be the greatest church, okay? We don't need to be the greatest church. But what if we could be known as a church that serves one another well? that serves our communities well, that serves and says, you know what, when it comes to being first, I wanna be the last where I live, work, and play. <laughs>